You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, Revelation 17, I want to read the chapter. I want you to ask questions of the text as I'm reading it. My prayer is that the preaching will answer most, if not all, of those questions and that we will arrive at understanding the point for John writing it. Revelation 17, beginning in verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you what the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman, who was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes, and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, and one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. And for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful." And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the great prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute and will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. 
And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. You know, we find ourselves at the end of the greatest story ever written. But if we think back to the opening words of the greatest story, in those words we're introduced to the author of this story who is none other than God of Scripture. And in those opening words, we get to see very quickly his simple plan for this story. His simple plan is that he would create an an awesome and amazing and beautiful creation and place as its centerpiece humanity. And we see in those opening verses the purpose for this centerpiece is simply that humanity would dwell with our creator in an unbroken and worship-moded fellowship with him. That's the whole point of creation. But we see very quickly as the opening chapters unfold and as the rest of the story unfolds is that there was a problem that affected this design. And that problem was that there was this attempted coup in the unseen realm by one of God's chief angels. And that attempted coup was thwarted, but that did not stop the dragon that did not stop the serpent that did not stop satan because he set his sights on the seen realm and he wanted to influence the seen realm the seen creation with his rebellion and with his 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 coup against the god of the universe and we know in chapter 3 he successfully influenced the centerpiece of God's creation and that worship motivated fellowship was broken. That's the beginning of the story. And from that point on, we actually see there's only two groups of humans. In fact, Genesis 3.15 begins to explain to us these two groups. There will be offspring of the woman who will devote themselves to loyalty to the creator. And then there will be offspring of the serpent that devote themselves to themselves, to following after the serpent and the dragon. And those two groups will continue to be described throughout the story in different ways. They'll be described as uh, men versus the sons of God, of the faithful versus the rebellious. And what we've seen throughout the entire book of Revelation is John's attempt through symbols and through visions and through descriptions to make clear these two groups. In fact, here's a quote the team will put up on the screen. Revelation is a replay of scenes of God's redemptive plan to make clear the differences between the two groups and his plan for the end of each. And so what we find in Revelation 17, and we'll continue through chapter 19 and verse 10, is that these two groups are described as brides, two different brides. And the opportunity we have in chapter 17 is to see the big idea in your notes, and that's that the two brides are intended to provide more clarity and more opportunity for you and for me to identify to which group we belong. That's the point of this section. And and you see in the title of this sermon, this is a part one. This is the first of two brides, but this is part one. And we'll unpack part two, Lord willing, next week in chapter 18. 
So here's an opportunity to ask four questions from chapter 17 as we understand the text of ourselves. So the first question is this, where do you sit? Where do you sit? And, and this concept of being seated is prominent all throughout Revelation, but, but it actually is prominent in verses 1 through 3. But before we get to this idea of sit, let's look first of all at what it says. John says that the angel told him, I will show you the judgment on the great prostitute. Now it begs the question, is this a literal prostitute? Is this a literal woman? And we've been talking about the challenges for us as we read Revelation as 21st century readers of the text. And the challenge is, is what John describes literal or is it symbolic? And, and what I would like to say to you is an attempt to explain why I think it's symbolic yet one more time. I had a friend ask me this last week, Jeff, do you believe the flood in Genesis 8 and 9 was literal. And I answered him, absolutely, I believe it's literal. But, but why is that? How do we help ourselves to read this book, 66 books, uh, contained in them are a lot of stories, a lot of instruction, a lot of, in your English Bibles, words that are set apart to look like poetry or like hymns. So how do we know when we read the Bible whether God intends us to take something literally or symbolic? And I'll just give you two reminders that will be tools that will help us. The first one is, remember the type of literary device or genre that we are reading. So I've been explaining this over the last few weeks, but remember that we read a love letter differently than we read a legal contract. And so the Bible provides for us a lot of different literary devices and genres, so we read Psalms and we read the poetry of Psalms differently than we read the, the gospel accounts that are historical narratives. It doesn't mean we set aside that this is the word of God. It is absolutely the word of God. It just means we have different rules as we interpret scripture. And so when we read the flood narrative in Genesis 8 and 9, we understand that Moses is writing in a literary device or a genre that is historical narrative. He's giving a narrative account of history. And so the default when we read historical narrative is literal. We start with literal. That doesn't mean that there's no symbolism in historical narrative. It just means that we start with a default that it's literal. Now, what we're reading in Revelation is a literary device called apocalyptic, apocalyptic prophetic, meaning that we are given a, a view from God's perspective. That's apocalyptic. And prophetic in that it's previously unrevealed information or it's revealed information that now is being more explained and clear. And so when we read that type of literary device or genre, the default is symbolic. The second tool is not just literal devices, literary devices or genres, it's the rest of scripture. That's the second tool. So when we come across an account in Jonah that a man was swallowed by a fish and he survived for three days, I don't know about you, I want to take that symbolically because I can't comprehend that. When we read an account in Numbers that a donkey spoke to a man, 
The natural tendency for us in our modern context is to read that symbolically, but the rest of Scripture interacts with those two accounts by authors and characters that view that as literal, and so that helps us to understand that those texts are actually literal. I don't understand them. I've never had my dog speak to me, but I can take that with the default that that's literal. And so when we arrive at a declaration by John that he sees a prostitute, I think because of the literary device and the rest of Scripture, I think we can say this is symbolic. Now, if you take it literal, that, that's fine. But let's make sure that we're using a, a robust process to arrive at our conclusions. And, and when we do, I, I cannot defend this as literal, so I've landed on the fact that this is symbolic. So let's look at what John is saying. And this is where I got this concept of pride. A prostitute, and I'll keep it G, G-rated, is, by definition, someone who offers the activity of marriage cheaply or outside of God's design. Now, I understand that you could say, well, you can sometimes spend a lot of money, but cheaply means that we don't have to invest sacrificial love. Cheaply means that we don't declare a a lifelong loyalty. That's what a prostitute is. This is a false bride. This is a counterfeit bride. But then look at the vocabulary in verse 1. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you. If you flip over to chapter 21, I think this is interesting. Look at the vocabulary in verse 9. Then... One of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues spoke to me saying, come, I will show you. I think it's interesting that those words are almost exactly the same. And in chapter 21, we see John is going to be uh, explained what the bride of Christ is. And here in chapter 17, we see the false bride of the dragon. So this is the false bride. She's symbolically described as a prostitute. But then notice her position in verse 3. It says that he saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. This idea of sitting on something has been found all throughout Revelation. In fact, we see that there is one seated on a throne in chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. In chapter 14, we see one who is seated on a cloud describing Jesus, referencing Daniel 7. And what I want you to see is that this idea in Revelation of someone being seated on something is this. It's an established position of commitment. Would you write that down? When John says someone is seated on something, what he's revealing is an established position of commitment. Let me show you from Psalm 1 how this imagery is described by the psalmist as this great book begins. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the one who does not walk with the ungodly, who does not stand with the ungodly. But then where does he go? They do not sit in the place of sinners. They don't establish a position of commitment to the world. So that's a biblical illustration. Let me give you a practical illustration. Even if you're not a parent and you spent any time with children, you know that it can be difficult to to move a child either emotionally, spiritually, or physically when they're seated. 
When they're standing, it's a lot easier to be able to move someone. But when a child physically sits down, folds their arms, that is difficult to be able to move them. And what they're displaying to us while they're sitting there is that they have an established position of commitment. So what is the established position of commitment by this prostitute? Well, look where she's sitting in verse 3. She's sitting on a scarlet beast, but look at the description that John provides. This beast has blasphemous names, seven heads and ten horns. You can go back to chapter 12 and see that this is describing in the same way the dragon, the serpent, Satan himself. You can see in chapter 13, as we saw that John is revealing a counterfeit world system that the dragon has created, that the world system is described in this way. Seven heads, blasphemous names, ten horns. What I think John is describing here is that this prostitute is the expression of the world system historically over and over and over again. It can be a dynamic leader. It can be an economic policy. It can be a new strategy or philosophy. It can be a new uh, technology that is designed that the world just runs after. But what that expression is, is in commitment established with the world system, which is being moved by the dragon. Here's the description I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. This is describing a system or an expression dedicated to appealing to fleshly desires of the heart. And they'll put this image up on the screen, which is interesting. I think it's a a great summary that shows that when John describes the beast in Revelation, he's describing the world system coming at us, coming at humanity with more of a fear or terror tactic. But when he describes the prostitute or the harlot, there's more of an appeal to our lusts and our emotions. Verse 2 says that they drink the wine of sexual immorality, speaking symbolically of the alluring shimmer of the world. So here's the practical opportunity for you as we move on to verse 4, and that's this. The question you must ask yourself is, where are you seated? And you can evaluate that by looking at your calendar. Look at the events that you are committed to. Look at the disciplines of your life. Look at your career decisions. Look at the way that you interact with your boss and your coworkers. Look at the decisions that you're making as you're evaluating what school to attend. Begin looking at the patterns of your life, and it will begin to show where you are seated. Where is your established commitment? Is it aligned with the world system, or is it devoted to a worship-motivated fellowship with Christ? Where are you seated? Number two, the second question you ask yourself is, what do you see? What do you actually see? And John assists us by the description that he provides of an attractive woman. 
Now, we do have to provide a little bit of work as 21st century readers to see where this woman it was extremely attractive in John's description. The first one says that the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Now, that's enough for us to be able to see there's some sort of attraction here, isn't there? But I think the one that really stands out is when he says that she was adorned in purple and scarlet. Do you see that in the text? Now, for us, I'm actually looking out, and I see some purple, I see some scarlet. And so it's, it's challenging for us to see the significance of the beauty of someone wearing purple or scarlet. But when you go back to the ancient context, in a world that was filled with earth tones, purple and scarlet popped. In fact, purple and scarlet was rare. In fact, you can go back to the Old Testament, and you can see in Exodus 23... That as the people were bringing the wealth that they had been given from Egypt to be able to build the tabernacle amidst all of these things that we can understand as valuable, like jewels and and gold, it actually says they brought scarlet and purple yarn. What that means is, is that in the ancient world, this was extremely attractive. It was associated with wealth and with royalty. And so this woman is being described as being alluring, as being beautiful. In fact, look what it says she has in her hand, a golden cup. So even the beverages that she consumes are, are consumed in beautiful, beautiful cups. This woman is described as extremely attractive. Now the second way she's described as attractive, this one is a little bit of a stretch, but I think you can see it. It says in verse 6 that she was drunk. Do you see that in the text? And you say, well, how is that attractive? Trust me, in the world it is. And the world being drunk is attractive because it's often an opportunity for us to disconnect with the challenges of life. Often when you're around drunk people, they are funny. Often when you're around drunk people, you can be attracted to that because they don't have a care in the world. And I think what John is doing in these descriptions is showing us that the expressions of the world system are attractive. And then he says that what I want you to see is another association, not just that she's a prostitute, not just that she's beautiful, but I want you to see her as a city. Do you see that in the text? Will you follow me on this? He's describing her as a city, and not only as a city, but the great city Babylon. Now, again, I don't think this is a literal city. I think when you follow the theme of the story and you see what John is doing here, is he's just once again describing the world system, hopefully in a way that the original audience and every audience, including ours, that subsequently has read this amazing book, can wrap our brains around the point that John is communicating. Now let's just go back to the ancient context and understand that the ancient world, cities were centers of idolatry. And I so appreciate Vern Poitras's commentary on Revelation that really helped me see this. In the, in the ancient world, the cities were centers of idolatry, greed, materialism, and sexual immorality. And guess what? That's not so different than modern cities, is it? In fact, think about the cities of our country today. Are not the cities of our country today 
centers for philosophies and cultures that are against God's design? You may say, well, there's rural communities that are this way, or you may say, well, I'm not a city person. That's why I live in Olathe. Well, let's move that even further. Let's just think about media and advertising. Listen to what Poitras says about this. How much do these outlets bring into our homes and thoughts the seductions of money, sex, power, and pleasure? Isn't that true? Just look at social media. Just look at the movies and the television shows that are produced. Just just look at advertisements, whether it's a football game that you're going to watch this afternoon or Fox News or a sitcom. It it doesn't matter. Just just look at the, the media and advertisement and just see it's similar to the ancient cities. It's similar to our modern cities. The the world system is constantly presenting to us something that is beautiful and alluring and attractive, isn't it? But, but here's where the turn is. Look at verse 6. Actually, verse 5. It says, on her forehead was written a name of a mystery. What is a mystery? Here's what a mystery is. It's something hidden or not fully revealed. And so what John is saying is that there was a mystery about the city, a mystery about the prostitute, and the mystery is this. It's not what it seems. Go back to verse 4. It says that she had a golden cup, beautiful, but then look what the angel reveals, full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Look at verse 6. It says that she's drunk. Yes, but with what? With the blood of the saints. The blood of the martyrs in Jesus. And, and, and just for, for you, if you really want to get into the details, I don't think J- John is describing two different people of God here, that there's the saints of the Old Testament and those who, who then are followers of Christ. I think he's just describing the people of God in two different ways, that the world system attacks the people of God. This is what truly is going on with the world system. And here's the other reality. It exposes our perspective, doesn't it? Last week in chapter 16, we said there's two perspectives of God. One that begins with God, one that begins with man. If what John is describing to you is attractive... If the world system and all that it offers is attractive to you, then you must challenge the lenses that you're using to see. So how can you evaluate what you actually see? Evaluate, again, just like where you're sitting, your priorities, your commitments, the relationships that you have. Listen, let me summarize it like this. Do those interactions and commitments and decisions that you're making in your life grow you toward Christ or away from him? Would you sit in that for a moment? What do the decisions that you make and the commitments that you make and the identity that you have and the relationships that you're you're making What do they do with Christ? Do they grow you toward him or away from him? And if the answer is the latter, then you're seeing the world system as attractive. If the patterns and the majority of the decisions that you're making, the people that you're around are growing you toward Christ, then you see the world system for what it is. The question is, what do you see?
Which brings us to number three, the, the third question to ask, and that is, who do you serve? Now, this section, I acknowledge to you, is really difficult, but it's helpful. It says in the second part of verse 6, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. The word marvel is so interesting. I actually saw it pop up several times in my reading of Acts this morning. It means to be struck or stuck because of an observation. Meaning I'm so impacted by what I observed or what I heard that I'm stuck. I can't actually move past that. And so the angel says, don't stay stuck. I'm going to explain to you what it means. And he's going to provide details about the beast in this section and then the woman in the next section to explain to him what's going on here. Now, there's a lot of amazing detail. And you're welcome to try to figure out all of the details of it. But as I worked through it, I came to a conclusion that I don't think that's John's point. That John's point is not for us to try to figure out all of the details, but to instead see that the beast is the world system designed by the dragon. That's the point. And as we look at this, we begin to see that the influences, the, the movements, the, the nations, and specifically the kings are what he's drawing to our attention. Look at verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. See, wisdom is the practical application of God's word to everyday life. That's what moves knowledge into application. That's what moves information into influence. And he's saying that the person who reads this, you and me, need to apply wisdom to what we're reading. Meaning, we don't just get to a place where we say, God's got this and he'll figure it out in the end. We get to a place where we're actually wrestling with this. This calls for wisdom. And here's what he begins to explain. The seven heads of the beast are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now, Rome historically was situated on seven mountains or seven hills. So trust me, I've read a lot of commentators to say this shows us he's speaking specifically of the area where Rome is. I think when you see what John continues to unpack is that this is symbolic details teaching a literal truth, and he says here that these seven hills are actually seven kings. And he's going to say the ten horns are ten kings, and he's drawing our attention to kings. That's the point. Now, for us as Americans with our history, it's difficult for us to just naturally understand this concept of kings. I love listening to Brits debate with uh, Americans because they are stuck in this whole uh, constitutional monarchy, and so for them, they would understand this. For us as a democratic republic, it's like, what? But the point that John seems to be making is something I think we all can wrap our brains around, and that is the concept of a king requires people to serve him doesn't it? That seems to be the point here, is this emphasis on kings makes us understand that the expectation is that the world system expects to be served. And people certainly do that, and that's the description that I think John provides. 
Now, I know that there are some who want to identify who these kings are. There's five who have fallen, one who is, and another that's yet to come. And I've seen a lot of commentaries say, well, these are the emperors of Rome. But when you actually follow the history of the emperors of Rome, it does not align very cleanly. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is actually the phrase was, is to come, and is not. I think that's the point. And what it is, is that it's a counterfeit. Because there is one who was, and who is to come, and who also is, and who is that? That's God, back in chapter 1. And then in chapter 1, verse 8, it's also Christ. And I think what John is saying here is, look, the world system and everything that is contained in it presents itself as though it will deliver, presents itself as though it will give us what God intended us to have and experience and enjoy, but it falls short. It is a counterfeit, and yet everyone in humanity devotes themselves to the world system, doesn't it? Look at what the text says. They hand over their authority to the beast. They're more than willing in one mind and in unison and in unity to give everything, their devotion, to the beast. But what is the beast doing? He's at war with the lamb. How interesting is that? And so the kings, for a limited amount of time, it describes that as a temporary, describes it in the context of one hour. Do you see that in verse 12? And so we, we should ask the question, what does the one hour mean? Is this a literal 24-hour period, one hour of that? And I think it's the same thing as the 42 months, as the three years, as the 1260 days, and even the three and a half days described in chapter 11. It's showing that God is the one who is in authority to limit all of this. Now, I'll tell you where I land on the one hour. I, I think it's the 42 months between Jesus' resurrection and setting up his eternal state, which you know that's way more than 42 calendar months. Others say that it's the three and a half days that are described in chapter 11. I think, again, the point is not literal details, but in symbolic details, pointing us to literal truth, which is the literal truth is, Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ is the one who has authority, and the world does not dictate the time. Christ does. How awesome is that? And so you actually see that here in the text. John says, the Lamb is the one who conquers and is Lord of lords and King of kings. But here's the question. Who do you serve? See, a, a, a citizen of a kingdom serves absolutely the king. A citizen of the kingdom does not serve the king until the next voting opportunity comes up. The, the citizen of the kingdom does not have one foot in service and one foot in autonomy. The servant of the king is all in. And it's described here at the end of verse 14. Look at this. Those who are called and chosen and faithful. And let me just linger in this for just a moment to remind us the Bible teaches predestination. Now I know there's a lot of applications of this that are hard for us to wrap our brain around. 
I know there's been people who believe in predestination that have foolishly applied this in an unwise way that we don't need to evangelize. We don't need to pray because after all, if God's predestined, then what role do we have? That's an unwise application of biblical truth. The Bible teaches predestination. In fact, it's right here. Look at what it says back in verse 8. Those who are written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says we were chosen and predestined before time actually began. And it was not God looking forward in the corridors of time and exercising his omniscience, his all-knowing, and saying, you know what? In 1987, on Lookout Mountain, Jeff Terrell is going to choose me. That's not what that means. It means that God actually sat before the foundation of the world and said, Jeff Terrell will respond to my gracious extension of the gospel of Jesus Christ because I'm going to transform his will. I'm going to transform his nature so that he can no longer live in rebellion, but like a baby who's able to breathe for the first time will breathe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not because Jeff chose me, but because I chose him. See, 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 the blessing of seeing it that way, the way the Bible sees it, is it takes any pride out of the equation for me. I didn't bring anything to the table of negotiation. There's no table of negotiation. I don't have the spiritual ability to do anything of spiritual value. I am dead and in my trespasses and sins. The doctrine of predestination humbles us. It should not bring pride into the equation. And actually, you know what? The doctrine of predestination should make us even more evangelistic than we were before he came to that knowledge. Because it doesn't depend on me. So when I go to an opportunity to talk to some stranger about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the pressure is not on me to convince their will. The pressure on me is to be faithful. The pressure to me is to share the gospel and the truth of God's word with a genuine love for that image bearer and know that if this is the time when God has chosen to reveal himself to that person and grant them repentance and grant them faith, it's going to happen even if I'm stammering all over myself. Man, doesn't that excite you? And the Bible teaches this, and this is one of many passages, that those who are written in the book of life Had that done before the foundation of the world, they were chosen, then they were called, and God has made us faithful. So as we see all of this description and all of these amazing details, and we want to wrestle with who is this and when is this going to happen, the point that John is giving us is the opportunity to answer the question, who do you serve? Is it the world system and all the allurement of it? Or is it the King of kings and Lord of lords? Number four, where do you stand? Where do you stand? Oh, there's so much here. But it's unpacked even more in chapter 18. So we'll unpack this in more detail when we get to that passage next week. But I want you to see a couple things. The angel's going to explain who the angel is and what the waters are, or who the prostitute is and what the waters are, and that helps us understand the point that John is advancing. It says in verse 15, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. This means the world is following after this prostitute. The world is the objective of the dragon. 
This is everyone who, verse 8, has not had their names written in the book of life. What's fascinating, fascinating about this, though, is the description. The world system and the expression of it, it actually implodes on itself. Isn't that fascinating? Now, again, I'll just tell you how I've arrived at this not being a literal woman or a, a literal activity. is because what you see in verse 16 just doesn't seem to hold up and make sense. If this is a literal woman, why would she be made desolate, naked? People devour her flesh literally and then burn her up with fire. I, I, I just see this as symbolism. And what is it saying? It's saying this, that throughout this period of time, from the resurrection to the eternal kingdom that Christ will set up when he returns, there's this re- repetitive reality that as a new leader is brought up, to promise to deliver as a new technology is brought up, to promise to deliver as a new economic discovery is brought up as a promise to deliver, it never satisfies, does it? And this is a tale as old as time. It goes back to the beginning. And when it does not deliver, what happens? The the world system devours it and raises up something else. In one mind, the world system is constantly doing the bidding of the beast the bidding of the dragon. And when it does not satisfy, it implodes on itself and it will continue to do this over and over again until the final time, and that's when Christ wins. You see, the true measure of commitment and conviction is where you stand. And that is on display when you have the opportunity to respond when your expectations are not met. See, this replay will continue until verse 17. All the words of God are fulfilled. Do you see it in the text? Oh, man, I've been reading through the Gospels and through Acts, and how many times do the authors and the apostles and the disciples talk about this was to fulfill, this is to fulfill, this is to fulfill. All of the words of God will be fulfilled. And I think in here, as an aside... But the details that John is giving us here and the original audience are less about the details for us to figure out about the future and more about how we can interpret the entire book of Daniel. But I'm going to have to leave that as a seed, water it next week, and hopefully it germinates and grows in all of our hearts. See, when push comes to shove, the question you must ask yourself is this, where do you stand? you bow your heads and close your eyes an amazing chapter filled with amazing imagery has presented to us as a part one the false bride the false bride of the world system and i hope as i've attempted to explain it how i believe the original author intended it for the original audience what is your takeaway What are your answers to these questions? The most important question is, are you a follower of this king? Have you submitted to this king? The king requires full submission, full surrender. But but the beautiful reality is, is that he actually gives you freedom by being his slave. The ultimate freedom that is offered is being a slave of God, not a slave to this world. Friend, are you a slave of God? You begin to be a slave by repenting of your sin 
and trusting in the completed work of Christ, devoting yourself completely to him as your king. If you've never done that, would you do that this morning? There will be members of our prayer team at the ends of the stage. They would love to be able to answer your questions and point you to the direction of growth if today you give your life to Christ. For the rest of us, where are we in relation to the prostitute? Where are we in relation to the world system? Are the patterns of our lives giving evidence that we serve the king or that we serve the city? This is your opportunity and my opportunity to apply the learning of the text. Father, I thank you for this amazing chapter and pray that I've been faithful. Not to provide every answer, not to declare that my convictions are 100% accurate and the end all be all, but instead to help us arrive at a better understanding of interpreting scripture and most of all, a recognition of the point of this chapter. Would you use this learning in our lives to transition it to living so that we can reflect the glory and the majesty of Christ. It's in his name that I pray. And all God's people said, amen.